Welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. In each episode, we discuss a different topical safeguarding issue with a range of different guest speakers. Please be aware some of this content is sensitive and listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, welcome to the Safeguarding Podcast. My name's Georgia, I'm the content manager at the Safeguarding Company. I'm really excited today to be joined by Jenny Tanay, who is an eating disorder coach, and Becky Stone, who is an eating disorder counsellor. Welcome, the two of you. Hiya, it's lovely to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> no worries, good to have you back again, Jenny, after the last one. <laughs> yeah. So I thought we'd just kick off. If you wouldn't mind just telling me a little bit about you and a bit about your background, because it's really interesting to have both of you here who work closely with people with eating disorders, and both of you have dyslexia. So, Jenny, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, well, as from my previous podcast, I'm an eating disorder coach, nutritional therapist, and I'm also a personal trainer. And um, so with the dyslexia um, journey, something that I've honestly just found out uh, very recently, um, because I, I met Becky and I was chatting to Becky about dyslexia and, and eating disorders. And it's something that actually Becky picked up on me um, because I, I told her about my struggles at school because I struggled a lot with uh, maths. Uh, in school and uh, particularly like science and languages um, so I, I had a tutor as well throughout the whole of my school for maths um, so I, I really sort of needed that extra support and in school I always I, I wasn't diagnosed at all with uh, dyslexia I was actually told that I was just a slow learner um, and that actually made me feel really um, it made me sort of more hard on myself as well at school because I really put a lot of pressure on myself to sort of do well. And I, I generally thought I was a slow learner. Like I had no idea that I was, you know, had the dyslexia. And I, I did an assessment and it you know, came out that I actually was. And that was from Becky sort of noticing it and flagging it up. And then I thought, OK, let's do something about it. <laughs> so you've basically gone through all your childhood and most of your adult life not actually knowing Yep. <laughs> that must have been incredibly stressful for you, especially, like you said, going through school and just being told, oh, you're so slow learner, you'll get it. When in reality, if you'd known, there could have been extra help for you and things put in place to help you with your schooling. No, definitely. And I think my parents, you know, they never really knew about it or picked up on it as well, because my dad's actually dyslexic as well. Um, I noticed some things with him as well, like trouble with spelling and, and certain things like that. Um, like he's very practical. Obviously people with dyslexia, like some people are very practical as well. Um, but yeah, like obviously my parents just kind of saw it as that, okay, she's just a bit of a slow learner and behind. Let's just pay the extra money, you know, for her to have a tutor. And that's what they did because they wanted to help me. And my parents have always done that. And they were, you know, in a position where they could provide that for me. Um, at the time but it didn't help me because I just thought I, I generally thought I was a slow learner and I was very hard on myself for that so you know and I think with obviously we talk about that with with Becky and with the eating disorder like with and the dyslexia and the links you know again like you know because dyslexia is linked to perfectionism so I, I, I those traits come out in me as well and it's you know it's I, I w- really wish that I was told like a lot you know, earlier on in my life because I think I would have been a lot kinder to myself as well and having like an early the importance of like early screening as well uh, for kids with uh, dyslexia. I think you've touched on something really important there as well when you said that your parents were in the position to hire a tutor to help you 
But mm. for a lot of family, that's just out of question. They can't afford to do something like that. So for a lot of children, they'd just struggle on, wouldn't they, without really knowing. Yeah, no. And then who knows what the, that critical voice inside their head is saying, you know, uh, yeah. like what mine was, you know, being really hard on themselves. And, yeah, where do they get support from? It's, you know, if they can't afford it, and it's, it's not good. And then they'll, they'll struggle through school and the learning process. And that's why, obviously, the schools need to look at some sort of external support to help those kids who are suffering, you know, with the dyslexia and the importance of the early screening as well. Yeah. Becky, let's bring you in. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, like, your journey as well? Because I understand you also were diagnosed later on yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, massively. I got diagnosed at the age of 36. And um at school, I was kicked out of class I'm very similar to Jen I really struggled with maths and I never forget I know I'm I'm 43 so I'm a little bit older than Jen and but dyslexia was never really identified in schools and um, wasn't really spoken about I was always the one that was even messing around I got kicked out of class um, I hit secondary school and got told to stand up in my first lesson of maths and told to sing I'm a little teapot because I didn't know what my times table was because I never got taught it at school. So I was always sort of, I was different at school and I masked it a lot. I was, I'll never forget that moment. And I think the teacher at the time, he realised he messed up and yeah. um, he did. He spent a lot of time with me teaching me my times tables, my maths. Um, but my anxiety was always really high, but I masked it by talking. So as I got older and I went and I did a play therapy course a few years ago, and that's where they started flagging it up to say, look, I really think you're dyslexic. And then I was noticing my daughter um, was her stuff and her struggles at school. So I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to go get diagnosed. And as I got diagnosed, it took, there was part of me, if I'm really honest, was like, oh, maybe I'm just thick, maybe I'm stupid, maybe there's nothing really going on in my mind, and maybe it's just me making this all up. And then I can remember feeling so anxious for when I got into the testing centre. And I think at the time it cost me about 400 quid. It was the best 400 pounds I can ever spend on myself because it's an investment back into who I am as a person. But what was really interesting is I got halfway through the diagnosis and I was sobbing. I couldn't, my reading age, I think, is something between a seven and an 11 year old of how I process my reading and my spelling. But I also noticed my son was dyslexic and he's very similar to me. And I was like, he's messing around at school in his GCSEs and his behaviour patterns. I was thinking, what the hell? He's been missed as well. So actually, as a family unit, it's done us all the world of good because we really get each other now. Um, I can't, I struggle with foreign languages. So if somebody's got an accent, I'm always like, what? And it looks like I'm rude and I'm not. I just can't process what they're saying. Or if you ask me to um, do my poor accountant, I love him dearly, but my accounts, I can't add up very well. But business wise, I'm an amazing businesswoman. I'm really creative. Um, I'm always thinking, oh, I've got a really successful business. Um, I'm really good with people. I look outside the box. I've, I've got a, a gift, which I've learned to accept as a gift. Um, but as I've got to know Jen, even though like both of us are dyslexic and very similar, we're both very different. So Jen uses perfectionism and I'm slightly more of an avoider. I wing it to the last moment. And recently we went and did the um, Yorkshire Three Peaks and Jen rung me up and she's like, are you all organised? Have you bought everything back? And I'm like, nah, we've got weeks to go. 
And she's like, no, Beck, we go next weekend. And I'm like, oh, I haven't got anything ready. Where Jen's in the shop, she's organising, she's got a list, she's yeah. street, uh, like where she's at. And I'm like, oh, I've really got to sort this out. So I think this mm-hmm. is with dyslexia, but it can come across that you don't care, you're not organised, you're not listening, you're not thinking correctly, because you just don't fit a box. I think it's important to remember, like, dyslexia itself is almost like a spectrum, isn't it? And people will land on different places and might not have very similar traits. Mm. And I think that's why people, we like to try to put things into a box, don't we? Like, oh, people who are dyslexic, they're just not good at academic things. But like you said, personality-wise, it kind of varies from person to person. And also, like, things like spatial awareness. If you said to me, Becky, I would like you to meet me here on uh, Google Maps, I would end up thinking, oh, I get really anxious before I leave. And actually, since I got diagnosed, I know that I have to put coping strategies in. I always put um, my my live location, my friends know where I'm at. So if I'm going round and round and round about, instead of thinking, I've got to go home, I've got to go home, they would just go back, take the third exit, you're going around in circles find your way forward and I think there's so many different elements it's not just about reading and writing I think there's lots of things that make you slightly different with dyslexia. I think as well the two of you have both been diagnosed a little bit later on and now you've got these strategies that you can put in place to help you but imagine how difficult it must be for children who are trying to like navigate the adolescence and schooling and so much going on to not know that you're dyslexic and try to deal with it must be really quite traumatising, to be honest. I work with quite a few young teenagers and they make themselves invisible so the teachers don't notice them so they never got asked the questions. Or they're the complete opposite where they're getting kicked out of class because they don't want to look stupid in front of their peers. So they're getting kicked out and then they're branded as the naughty kid. Well, it's not. It's just they don't get it. But their coping mechanism where if they were able to have like a visual learning with more metaphors instead of more um, the writing side of it, I think they'd thrive. Yeah, it's just providing their learning in all the different ways. I'm very much a visual learner. That's why I struggled in school. But like Becky said, I definitely now know that I mastermind through perfectionism because I was, I just studied hard. I put my head, I, I put my head down a lot of school. I, yeah. I hardly I hardly went out when I was doing my A-levels, but I just studied. And I think yeah, there's um, a lot of other people doing that out there as well. <laughs> like, I imagine, um, I hope that schools are starting to move in different directions now where they're more accommodating to people who mm. aren't, um, like, learning from books and learning from writing. But like you said, they're visual learners, and they learn through actually standing up and stepping through all the motions, which is hard to do in some subjects like science and English. But I think it's important that now, especially when a lot of people are having to work from home and a lot of schools are doing homeschooling and stuff like that, we need to have those different learning points catered for. So I'm really interested now, the link between dyslexia and eating disorders. Who can talk me through that? (laughs) I started noticing the link, um, I think because being diagnosed, I think it's been an absolute 
saviour for me. And what I was noticing is I was getting lots. I started doing eating disorders in 2018 and I've worked in a lot of schools. And all of a sudden I'm beginning to notice this pattern. So even though I'm as a professional, I am not able to diagnose. But when I do spot little things, I ask. So when you come into therapy with me, I will send you over three screenings, one for autism, ADHD and dyslexia. So what I was noticing the pattern with the eating disorders was their brains were racing. There was a lot of anxieties, a lot of overthinking, and there was a lot of masking going on. And so I'd say to them, I'd do me a favour. Could you fill out this form and see what it comes back with? I said, I've just got a bit of an idea, but I cannot diagnose you. Um, and what I was noticing was dyslexia was coming again and again and again through some of the screenings because they didn't understand themselves because their self-esteem was really low. Their spatial awareness was different. So when you look in a mirror, and I don't know whether you two are like it, but I can take a picture of myself and I can take one look at it and I'll be like, I pick holes in it. And then I can come back an hour later and my visual distortion is different. I'm not, I don't, I don't get that. There's nothing wrong with that picture. But because of the low self-esteem and the eating disorders, it will pick away at what you see so when you're looking in a mirror for example you'll be picking away at you're not thin or you're, you're fat or you're not thin enough or all of the negative thinking so I sort of describe it as you've got three brains so you'd have like for example Becky Stone brain you have the dyslexic part of Becky Stone and then you'd have because I've recovered from anorexia and then I'd have the anorexic part of my brain but the the voice of the chatter of the anorexia would end up feeding off my low self-esteem and distortion because of the dyslexia and I think if people are diagnosed a lot younger so they understand who they are, I reckon they can find power within themselves to be able to push back on the, the negative thinking of the eating disorder. And that part of trying to fit in society, when when you are dyslexic, you are different and it's OK to be different. It's really well said. I just think with the... I think a lot of people are doing what I did with the perfectionism, trying to hide it in that way, kind of seen as the, the, the hardworking sort of uh, person, which is what which is what I did. I just kind of got my head down and did it. And with the, you know, with the link, you know, I found the link between dyslexia and the eating disorder really interesting because of the overthinking that I used to do a lot. So that's why I firmly believe it took my recovery a lot longer because of the dyslexia, because I used to overthink everything, like overthinking about food, exercise, and the anxiety as well. So I do suffer with anxiety, but it, it does run in my family as well. So the, the anxiety and the dyslexia, because obviously my dad is as well. Um, so kind of all those links really like, if I'd have known about that, about myself, I think I would have learned how to, you know, better manage myself as well when I was younger, because I had no idea about any of this, you know. So. Mm. It's a shame, I think, the shame that goes with dyslexia that you try and hide away and the guilt that you're different. And of course, the eating disorder part of you wants to manage those feelings so having an eating disorder creates shame and anxiety within itself being dyslexic creates shame and sometimes like I can be out and about and people are like and I'm trying to talk and I can't get all my words out because my brain is racing and that then I can feel really embarrassed and I'm like oh I've got to get out of here I've got to get out of here and instead now I will just say I'm dyslexic, I'm muddling my words up, give me two seconds, I re-pause, reframe, and I come back in a different way. But I think if young kids are able to know that this is why they do what they do, they will have the courage to say, no, I muddle my words up because I'm dyslexic. So do you think a lot of people who have dyslexia but maybe don't realise it, they kind of 
use the eating disorder as a way to get control back in their lives. Like maybe they can't control how their schooling is, but they can control what they're eating and like what they're consuming. Yeah, I'd say so. I think it's a it is a form of control. Yeah. Is it? It's a numbing. It stops the feeling, but then at the same time, it creates another problem. It's like, um, I have an analogy of like the Spider Man. I don't know if you've seen the film um, where you've got the good Spider-Man and you've got the black Spider-Man and then all of a sudden this black venomous um, sort of takes over Spider-Man's outfit and that is what eating disorders are like. They sort of, once you allow that inch and that overthinking to take over, all of a sudden it's got a little bit more room to claw up you and that's it. And sometimes the illness just ends up becoming so big that you end up sort of being like the black Spider-Man. It takes a lot of strength to bounce back from it. Oh, definitely. That's a great analogy. (laughs) (laughs) So do you think people who have dyslexia are more prone to eating disorders or is that not a fair claim to make? I would say just for experience, yes. Okay. I think that's just through my clients that I've got coming through. So I haven't got anything written down as a statistic. I would say two out of the four clients that I see for eating disorders have undiagnosed dyslexia. And I've had a few people as adults who've been in who've been in units as like, say, my age, but they've been in units for eating disorders. And I've got some really good recovery rates out of them because I said I really think that the eating your dyslexic and the eating disorder is feeding off your dyslexia and once they've got diagnosed all of a sudden the pressure and the anxiety has disappeared and the recovery they're lot on fire. Why do you think that helps to be diagnosed with dyslexia? How does that help with an eating disorder recovery? I think it's more about having an answer. Okay. I think once you've got an answer of why you are the way you are and your brain works in that way, you, you're not having to overcompensate all the time. I was going to say, it allows you to better understand yourself, I guess, and understand. I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out, to be honest, because I've only just recently found out about this. So it's kind of, you know, given me a lot of relief because I understand the way that my body works now, I guess, or I try and manage that better now because I can get quite full quite easily. Like, I can work quite intensely but then I have to stop because it's just too much I have to like have a rest and then go back to it I, I can't so I'm quite intense with, with work that I do with clients and with the gen ups the stuff that I'm doing we're doing in schools but then I have to have a break because I can get full up quite easily and I think because of that I, I was hard on myself because I just felt like oh, okay I'm not doing enough or what's wrong with me or I should be doing more but it's because of the dyslexia that I get like that So I think, you know, having sort of a sense of relief and just trying to work with what my body can do, knowing my limits, knowing my body, is is helpful to know that because it allows you to be allows you to be kinder to yourself. That's what I think as well. Also, that bit of when you're zoning out, especially when you're in school, the teachers think you're not listening or stop fiddling or pay attention. You're not going to learn. You're not going to get anywhere in your life if you don't sit still where. I've um, and I, I'm aware I do it, but I will, if I'm really listening intensely, I will sit and I will stroke my hair, and I've always done it ever since I was in school. And I think it was my way because I wasn't allowed to fiddle with anything in school because I was always stood up or told off or humiliated because I was always fiddling or chattering. Those little coping seconds, coping mechanisms. See, that's where the dyslexia, the muddling up, comes in. The coping mechanisms that I put in were never really recognised at school, but I needed that is like a calming technique for me to absorb what's going on. 
but it is. I think kids need to have like a 40-minute session of learning, good 10-minute break, come back in. Another, I mean, for younger kids, I think a shorter break. But I notice it in the therapy room that clients tend to, especially the younger teenagers, 40 minutes max, and you, you've lost them after that. So I think mm. recognising time out, recharge time. And also, I mean, Gemma were talking about this the other day, that recognising when like, I'm the best in the morning sometimes with how my brain works. So by the evening, if you try to have a conversation with me, there isn't a lot left. <laughs> yeah. And then you have people who are the opposite and they're night yeah. out, aren't they? They get most of their work yeah. done in the evenings or late at night. And I like to think that now society is becoming a lot more accepting of people who work a little bit differently and we understand like not everyone is built for a nine to five Monday to Friday kind of job. So it's nice knowing yeah. that there's more flexibility coming in, especially in terms of learning and working. Um, I guess as well, when we're talking about the link between dyslexia and eating disorders, there are almost two groups we're talking to, aren't there? There are those who are diagnosed with dyslexia and those who maybe don't know that they're dyslexic. Um, would you be able to tell me a couple of maybe signs and symptoms that people might be able to look out for if they're feeling like maybe I'm relating to this and maybe I feel that I possibly might be dyslexic? I would say my my brain is like an if you feel that your brain is like a firework party and um you can't sit still, like you try to sit still but your mind's always racing. Um, when you go to bed, your brain literally has the best ideas or you find yourself zoning in and zoning out to conversations. You've got a lower attention span, but you think of things in metaphors all the time. So when I remember people or places, they've always got a picture of where they need to be. Um, I would say fiddling is another little one. Uh, knife and fork. Do you hold your knife and fork differently? It, you hold the pen differently and it doesn't like when you're at school and you're writing, your teacher was always saying to you, hold your pen properly. Or is your writing really incoherent, but you can read it? Um, do you muddle certain words up together or certain numbers up? Or do you get really anxious when you're getting on the bus and you're thinking, oh, when's the next bus stop? When's the next bus stop? Oh, I hope I haven't missed it. And you check your phone to make sure you haven't missed the bus stop. Is it that you muddle up your left and your right sometimes? Or you've got like a delay tying your shoelaces so for example I really struggled doing my shoelaces when I was a kid um so I'd always use have like velcro shoes for a little while until I got the hang of it um I was always zoning out quite a lot so people would say oh yeah. Becky's in fairyland quite a lot but it was just because I was thinking about what somebody was saying but it was just a little bit delayed before somebody come back and spoke to me about it what about you Jen yeah the sort of slow processing isn't it and the reading so I'm quite I've noticed that I'm quite slow with like reading, but like, I struggle to like read text. So if there's like a lot of text on A4, like I have to have some like block, I have to have colours or something. Like I struggle to struggle to read like a whole plane full of text on a book. Like so, you know, like, just normal books for reading. I, I use a lot of audio books now because I find that I just take that in better. So yeah, it's just struggling to sort of you know read books like that as well because I'm I'm a visual learner. Um, as well and and the maths they're struggling with the maths and, and the language sort of side of it they are big indicators because I struggle with that as well yeah letters and numbers mixed together I worked for an agency a few years ago and their um, invoicing was letters and numbers 
and it used to create this anxiety every time I had to put my invoicing in and all of a sudden I could feel myself not handing my wages in to get paid because the numbers and the letters were muddling up and it was causing more anxiety so if you find yourself avoiding things there could be something else going on that you don't want to end up being silly or asking for help because you might end up being shamed for it but actually sometimes voicing it can make it a lot easier and just while I'm thinking of it, dyslexia and ADHD have a 30% chance that you have those traits that link together. So recently I did one of the screenings that I have here, and um, I've always said I'm a bit like Tasmanian devil. I'm very all or nothing thinking. And as I, um, <laughs> so I did the questionnaire, I was like, oh, I think I've got a little bit of ADHD going on here. And um, I called up my brother and I said to him, I've done the ADHD uh, screening. And I said what about you? And he goes, yeah, I think I've got ADHD too. And I went, he says, I can have a conversation with somebody and I'm thinking about something else. And he goes, and I end up walking off. And I go, I do that too. And it's not <laughs> listening. It's just you're thinking about the next thing because your brain is racing. So sometimes it's having to really ground yourself to learn how to slow that anxiety and that thinking down. But it can, ADHD and dyslexia are linked in together. So they can get slightly confused. That is really interesting. You've both spoken quite a bit about anxiety. So I guess what are some of the coping strategies that you've put in place to deal with feeling anxious? Me personally, with anxiety, I do try and take time out. So I go for a walk and listen to some music. I find nature really calming for me. But everyone's different. What works for them might not work for others. So I think it's finding out what works best for yourself. But that works for me, just going out for a walk, getting outside of my own head. So like going out for a walk, being in nature, yoga. I find yoga really helpful for me because I'm I'm someone that finds it hard to sit still and listen to a meditation tape. Like sometimes I just can't do that. But when I want I to do that, <laughs> when I want to do it and I know that I need to do it, I will do it. And I'll, I'll try to force myself to do it. But I do find that hard to do. So kind of walk in nature or like yoga is really good for me. Just getting outside of your head and into your body. That's why yoga is really good. Oh, I'm a little bit opposite to you. If you said to me to do yoga or meditation, I really <laughs> struggle. Um, and I, I think maybe that's, I mean, it'd be interesting to get a diagnosis of ADHD, but I really struggle. My brain is just constantly going. So I would say to you that mine would be walking the dogs. That is my meditation. It's just getting out and being able to be quite grounded and give myself a little bit of a safe space to think without using technology, because I find technology really can race my mind up. I think it's interesting that you've both mentioned um, strategies for coping with anxiety. They're quite physical, like walking and um, yoga. Um, how would someone maybe struggle with an eating disorder then deal with that because I know with a lot of eating disorders sometimes they're linked with compulsive exercise as well so mm -hmm. how would you encourage someone who maybe uses exercise to de-stress but they also use exercise because they want to stay thin and they don't want to gain weight no yeah that's a really good question I mean when I say you know with the walking I'm literally going out for like 15-20 minutes like a light walk so promoting that not the extreme sort of like you know, when, yeah. yeah 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 or like going out for a, what I used to do was uh, years ago I used to just burn off all my anxiety for extreme exercise that's what I used yeah. to do but I know not to do that anymore like I know my limits I know I don't have to do that 
just just going out for a gentle walk is enough but yoga can be quite therapeutic for people with eating disorders but obviously just very gentle nothing like going into going and doing an hour power of yoga or something something that's calming for your body not extreme not this extreme exercise sort of side of it because there's a lot of we talked about this in previous podcasts about the promotion from the fitness industry like go harder like push harder like if you can't do it you're weak and your mindset's not strong enough it's the messaging is actually really like emotionally abusive when you think about it no yeah and that that messaging can be detrimental especially for people who suffer with eating disorders and they're quite sensitive to that and for being very hard on themselves and say oh no i'm not doing well enough i'm not pushing myself hard enough so yeah just keeping it gentle really and doing what works best for you it's um, best for the person is essential i mean it really depends on uh how it works for each person because it's very unique but if you said to me that i had to write a journal I don't have the attention span, but if you said to me, Beck, write a mind map of all the things that are going on in your head at the moment that could help lower your anxiety. So you sometimes on a piece of paper, I might fold it in half and I might put the evidence on one side and then my thoughts on the other side. So I would write down everything in my thoughts that so they're cognitively down on paper so I can see it. And then with the anxiety side, I'd look at the evidence and nine times out of 10, there's barely any evidence for all of this that's going on in my head so somebody has to find a way that works for them mind maps is my way of journaling because my brain is so it's a bit like a firework party it links together it makes sense to me but it might not make sense to somebody else where somebody else might really enjoy journaling or writing a letter like a no send letter of what's going on in their head could also be really powerful Wonderful. Um, Jenny, you've already mentioned this. We have had you on a previous podcast talking about eating disorders. So I'd advise Mm -hmm. listeners to go listen to that one because we got into a really good in-depth discussion. But I did want to just quickly bring up a lot of what we do at the Safeguarding Company as well is to try to look at early intervention and getting especially teachers who are around children all the time to maybe notice signs and symptoms of eating disorders so I was hoping between the two of you you could just tell me what are some early warning signs that people can look out for yeah I'll start off with a few and Becky can give some as well so I would say you know skipping I see a lot of going around like skipping lunch so not having lunch in school um also you know just so various sort of you know food restriction going on are there do they seem distant in class not themselves um have they started to exercise more after meals? Are they feeling guilty if they miss a workout? Um, those sort of signs. They're not you know, socialising or are they missing deadlines with schoolwork? Something else is going on. I mean, sometimes there is weight loss. Sometimes there isn't. That's not always the case. Um, but just some little signs there. I'm sure Becky can add to that as well. Yeah, little things of not eating their packed lunches, sticking them in the bin, lying that they've eaten the food. Um, you've got the the binging side of it where you're at school all day, you haven't eaten anything, and then you might be squirrelling wrappers and bits and pieces at home. So if a parent comes in and sort of says, um, I'm noticing there's lots of food being hidden or taken out of the cupboards, that could also be an indicator. Um, maybe distracting when you're sort of in the canteen and they're not wanting to eat the food and they're pushing it around the plate or they're trying to um, make more of a mess so they're pretending that they're not eating it 
or is it that they're eating they're chopping it up into tiny tiny little bits and then they're looking like they're slow eaters so then people get a bit annoyed come on lunchtime's over back to class those could be little signals as well that something else is going on and you mentioned binging just wanted to chat about that quickly because I feel like that word has got quite warped recently when I hear like some of my friends saying, oh, I was so bad, I binged yesterday. They didn't. They mm. might have had a bit too much chocolate. They ate a bag of crisps, but it's not like a massive binge. So like for you guys, when you're speaking to people who have eating disorders, what do you think a binge actually is and can it be different from person to person? I would say each person's very different on how they perceive it. Um, I used mm. to, teenager, I had a binge eating disorder, so I would eat excessive amounts of chocolate on the way home from school and then um, go home, wouldn't eat my dinner, um, and then I'd end up eating quite a lot when my mum wasn't around. So I think for each person it is very different. And as you come into sort of eating disorder therapy and coaching with me and Jen or seeking help I think it's important for us to understand what is actually going on for you and then putting those strategies in place to balance out those blood sugars of eating three times a day and then snack in place so however they see the binging it's not as shameful and as triggering as it could be yeah right it's also how often it's recurring as well like if they just done mm-hmm. like, if he's done like a one-off binge that we get like there's nothing that's fine though but if it's happening consistently here it's recurring and there's constant feelings of feeling out of control around their feed yeah then yeah there's something going on here i think that leads really well to my next question i know um previously Jenny, we've had you with us for webinars where you talked about eating disorders versus disordered eating Mm-hmm. Would you mind just explaining what the difference is between that? Yeah, sure. So someone with disordered eating, you know, they don't there's no sort of any concerns with shape or weight basically. So they could be, you know, someone who's depressed and just not wanting to eat. But generally there's no concerns around shape or weight. That's disordered eating. Whereas when it starts to become an eating disorder or a mild eating disorder, then there are concerns around shape or weight. So that's the distinguishment between the two. It's not an actual eating disorder because there's no concerns around shape or weight. So that's that's the dis- disordered eating. I mean, everyone has probably had some form of disordered eating uh, yeah, within their life. Um, you know, life gets in the way, we get stressed, you know, things like that. Also, people with um, autism, so autistic traits, they have slightly disordered eating because that's down to their autism because you'll see them eating, you know, relatively the same foods every day. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have an eating disorder. Yeah. I'm so, sure Becky would agree with that. Yeah, and I think there's, like with autism, you can get very fixated on routine foods. And as long as they're eating the correct amount of food that their body needs and they're getting the right nutrition, I think it's just taking the pressure away because they will go through, I've noticed that, um, autistic children will just go through phases as they get bored of what they're eating and then they try something else. But as long as they are eating, yeah. not they're not losing weight, I think it's really accepting where they're at for who they are as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I only have one more question for the two of you. And it's going back to how teachers can basically support people 
with dyslexia and or eating disorders. So when you were both at school, what could your teachers have done to better support you? And this is in no way me blaming anyone. I know times are changing now and we know more about dyslexia and eating disorders. But I just think it would be really useful since both of you have suffered from eating disorders and you both have dyslexia to hear personally what could have actually helped you and what would have supported you more. I would have said more visual techniques, especially in the learning side. Um, So instead of having textbook stuff that I wasn't able to, like, just retain the information, having words written with metaphors, I think I would have just absorbed things in such a different way. Maybe different coloured paper might have helped. Um, Slowing things down, I think sometimes that teachers, and I work with a lot of teachers um, in therapy, but they've got a lot of pressure put on them to reach their goals get to where they need to be and sometimes that just slowing things down a little bit and clocking the person who's getting kicked out of class and clocking the one that's quite quiet and trying to cope and hide I think they would be really good techniques just to watch out for and the fiddlers the ones that end up being told off constantly for fiddling they're little identifiers yeah no that's really good advice I would say the same thing really I mean I mean for me I mean (laughs) My mum and dad put me into a private school because they they knew that I was, well, this slow learner in primary school. So they put me into a private school so I, so I could have access to, you know, more attention um, from the teachers. So I think teachers, yeah, being educated, but educated a bit on parents as well, noticing if, yeah. uh, if like, you know, they're, you know, their son or their daughter is being hard on themselves and educating the parents around it as well because they might not necessarily need to go to a private school they could still go to a state school as long as they're getting the you know the necessary help or the early assessment in there um because that's the reason why they sent me there but you know if I'd have known that it just would have helped me so much and parents being aware of it too not just teachers um I think it's really important and also maybe looking at how much growth is in failure. So um, I know that I've come from a generation of schooling, but a lot of my work would have got ripped up at school, thrown in the bin, told to do again. But actually, how much growth is in failure? What could I have learned differently? What could I have done differently? Um, mm. Because we, especially in the English dictionary, we do look at failures that we're not good enough, and there's a lot of shame mm. that comes with it. So actually maybe teachers saying to the kids each day okay right I want you to tell me one thing you failed at today and flipping it on its head so then the kids could go I did this today miss and I messed up and then they go okay what could you do differently so they're making the kids think outside the box which then takes the shape away from it that's a really good idea love that that's lovely I do like that like I've always found it really interesting at school the grading system Mm. And how oh, yeah. you're dyslexic, you must, that must be really difficult if you're just passing. You're doing yeah. your very best, you're trying so hard. And yeah. other people just cruising through it, getting like their A's and A pluses. And it, it all was so confusing to me. Like, why can't yeah. it all just be like, you know, you've done the best that you can do and there's nothing wrong with that? I think it's accepting, I think how I've got to my head around it now is I'm not a grade A or B student. If you said to me, Beck, can you get 40% or 45% to be able to get through, I'd be quite happy with that, where I think it's accepting people for the level that they're at. 
and mm-hmm. getting them to do like a 5% marker. So instead of thinking, oh, well, if you don't get A's and B's, you're never good enough. Instead, like for me, if you said to me, Beck, if you could try for 45% this time, what do you need to put in place to get you to 45%? And I think that would boost my confidence because I think going at school, I always wanted to be good. I just couldn't really get to the A's and B's. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. that like, why should you have to get A's and B's when you're passing? Nothing wrong with passing. Mm. Okay. I think that's everything from me. I just wanted you to, to maybe mention the work you do if people want to get in touch with you for help with their eating disorders, for some coaching or some therapy. Um, Jenny, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. You can find me on the website at jenup.com uh, where all the information is there as well. And uh, the Safeguarding Company has our, all our toolkits for teachers on the early intervention and prevention. So looking out for the signs as well. And then we're also providing workshops for schools and we're a non-profit. So if any school is interested in that, uh, that would be great because obviously we can look into funding um, for the school in order to you know, provide the workshops for the teachers about eating disorders. Um, but you can email me at info at genup.com for that as well. And also for individual work too. Perfect. And you, Vicky? You can, me and Jen are working quite alongside each other at the moment, so you're very welcome to get in touch with Jen and um, we can come together that way. Or you can Google uh, Becky Stone at Counselor Who Cares. Um, I'm on social, most social medias like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and I have my own website of Counselor Who Cares. And you can just drop me an email with a little bit of information about what's going on and I'll get back to you and guide you if you want to have sessions or want a little bit more information around how to get some support put in place for um for a child or for an adult to support i can help you that way perfect and for all our listeners i'll put all this information on our website and in the show notes in the description of the podcast episode so you'll be able to access it um thank you so much for joining me becky it was really lovely to meet you and jen it's always good to see you so thank you so much for the session i've really enjoyed speaking to you guys thank you so much thank you for listening to the safeguarding podcast for resources and more information about our safeguarding solutions please visit the safeguardingcompany.com.